This is one of those days, maybe weeks and months, too, I don't know, where the economic nuts and bolts, they really matter. From American Public Media, this is Marketplace. In Los Angeles, I'm Kai Rizdal. It is Monday today, the 28th of February. Good as always to have you along, everybody. It has been quite the 72 hours deep inside the plumbing of this global economy. And that is where we are going to spend our time on the program today, because that's where the financial and economic fight over Ukraine is happening. We begin with the most basic element of any economy, the means of exchange, what you hand over to get something you want, the currency, a dollar, the euro, the yen, or the ruble. And the ruble today is the first and most prominent casualty of the sanctions the West has put in place over the weekend and this morning. Traded down more than 25 percent today as the Russian central bank has been cut off from the 630 or so billion dollars in foreign reserves it has. Some not small part of which is parked in banks and institutions not inside Russia. And that, as Marketplace's Mitchell Hartman explains to get us going, is going to make it difficult, if not impossible, for Moscow to protect its currency. Russia began building up its foreign exchange reserves, now totaling nearly $650 billion, after it invaded Crimea in 2014 as a hedge against future financial sanctions. Let's go through how that's supposed to work. Usman Mandang is at the London School of Economics. Central banks, you know, they hold foreign exchange reserves. In banks in foreign countries. The name is a little bit misleading because it's not foreign exchange in the sense of currencies. You see, it's not that they are banknotes in their vaults, but typically these are securities that they would have to liquidate first. Say, U.S. stocks or German bonds that Russia would sell, turning them into dollars or euros. And then they can use these bank balances to intervene, for example, in the foreign exchange market. Using those dollars or euros to buy rubles to try and prop up the currency. But... While, in theory, you are um, the owner of the security, well, in the event of sanctions, there are limitations as to your access to your securities. So it's like they're blocked in, and no one, international bankers, stockbrokers, currency traders, can break them out. And the point of these sanctions is to make it impossible for Russia to use its reserves. Karen Petru is a managing partner at Federal Financial Analytics in Washington, D.C. She points out the U.S. and European authorities are freezing, not seizing, Russia's foreign exchange reserves. It doesn't take anything from Russia. Russia still has its reserves, but it can't use them. They're useless. They're meaningless. They're no longer a resource for a stable Russian system and the war in Ukraine. Now, there is one significant loophole to these sanctions, and that's for buying oil and gas. And that does give Russia a little wiggle room, says Patrick Honahan, former governor of the Central Bank of Ireland, now a fellow at the Peterson Institute. Flows matter more importantly than reserves. So the, this flow of revenue coming into Russia from gas and petroleum exports uh, will keep them going. That may help Russia keep food in stores and maintain the flow of some crucial imports into the country, but it won't do anything to help the ruble. I'm Mitchell Hartman for Marketplace. More on oil and gas and those sanctions coming up in a bit as we continue our tour through the plumbing of global finance. On Wall Street today, it was one of those days that was terrible. And then traders looked around and said, oh, yeah, no, 
we're mostly good. We'll have the details when we do the numbers. You've seen the pictures and the video, I'm sure, on your cable news or social media feed of your choice. Lines at Russian ATMs as people try to get their money out while it's still worth something. Fears of bank runs that have forced the Putin government to put currency restrictions in place and more than double interest rates over there. Here's the thing, though. That's the whole point. These economic sanctions aren't about deterrence. They're about hurting the Russian economy and thus the people in it. Marketplace's Kristen Schwab has that one. There's this old Soviet joke that gets told during periods of economic instability in Russia. How much can you get for a ruble? And that is a slap in the face. Michael Bernstam is a fellow at the Hoover Institution. He was also a former economic advisor to the Central Bank of Russia right after the fall of communism. He says Russians are familiar with a ruble in crisis. The last time they experienced a collapse was 1998, when the country defaulted on its debt. Middle-aged people remember, young people remember. And those memories are accelerating panic to pull out cash before it runs out or before there are new limits on how much people can withdraw, and to buy necessities before imports disappear and shelves go bare. Joel Hyatt is the CEO of Globality. It's going to be very, very hard to continue to provide the daily needs of the Russian people, and it's going to be even harder for the Russian people to be able to afford uh, what they need. He says Russia imports a lot of food and chemicals, also machinery, which paired with a currency in freefall will even affect the cost of what Russia itself produces, like wheat for bread. There are huge influences on that very simple process of producing uh, the loaf of bread, getting it to the shelves of a grocery store, having it be affordable and having there be enough for everyone needing to access it. And when you combine all these pain points, panic, a cratering currency, limited supplies, and rising inflation, the economy could go rogue. There could be a black market for goods and services. Business owners may prioritize selling to customers who have access to foreign currency as opposed to the ruble. Life could get very difficult. Jonathan Peterson is an economist at Capital Economics. You know, when you have the, the average Russian experiencing something like this, and it's a direct consequence of, of the recent war, yeah, it's meant to be painful. How long it takes for the pain to set in and how long it lasts, that depends on what Russia does next and whether there will be further sanctions. I'm Kristen Schwab for Marketplace. You know, sometimes when you're explaining the plumbing of global finance, you need a good metaphor because honestly, this stuff gets complicated. One of the things that happened this weekend was that the Western allies decided to cut some Russian banks out of SWIFT. Remember, we talked about this the other day. It is technically the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunication, or to put it another way... The way I like to, to explain it is by thinking about uh, sort of a heating and cooling system in your house. Daniel McDowell is an associate professor of political science at Syracuse University, upon whose Twitter feed we stumbled the other day. 
when your room gets too cold, right, the thermostat sends uh, electronic signal down to the furnace to heat up some air. It says, hey, send some warm air up here. It's too cold. So that warm air moving through the house is money, right, going from one financial institution to another. SWIFT is the, uh, the thermostat. To be clear, SWIFT isn't moving any money. It's just a messaging system. They're telling banks how much money to move and where, to the EU maybe or Japan? These were uh, were what I would uh, refer to, I guess, as your ductwork sanctions, right? Uh, these were sanctions that basically said, here's a list of, of banks, oligarchs, right, wealthy individuals um, that are now uh, basically off limits. Those pathways, those air ducts, right, they got closed in earlier rounds of sanctions. So in that scenario, you're still hooked up to the thermostat and the furnace uh, might try to heat up some air, but it's not going to get there. And these latest rounds of sanctions are messing with the thermostat, the thing that tells the furnace to send warm air, money, right, upstairs. It's kind of a second line of defense, a pretty big deal when you remember that there are 11,000 banks and financial institutions across 200 countries and territories connected to this giant financial HVAC system. Details, of course, are still being worked out because, as I said, this stuff is complicated. But there is one big asterisk that is almost certainly going to be included. Yeah, Russian banks aren't going to be able to message through SWIFT about payments on behalf of originators or beneficiaries um, unless they're dealing in oil. (laughs) Dan McDowell at Syracuse, that oil asterisk straight ahead. The ongoing legal battle over how much people pay to file their taxes. From American Public Media, this is Marketplace Tech. I'm Kimberly Adams. For some, there's an option to file your taxes online for free using commercial software. But this year, fewer companies will be participating. Intuit, the parent company for TurboTax, is out and has been in a fight with many of its customers since a 2019 ProPublica investigation found the company allegedly misled consumers into paying for supposedly free services. Justin Elliott is one of the reporters who broke the story. He says TurboTax has tried to shield itself from traditional class action suits. TurboTax, in its terms of use, told its customers that you're not allowed to use that class action mechanism. And instead, you have to pursue a case sort of on a one-off basis in this private process outside the court system known as arbitration. A law firm out in Chicago called Keller Lenkner has actually sort of for the first time in recent years helped customers file tens and tens of thousands of these individual arbitrations against TurboTax, which are now making their way through the process. Is there any precedent for this kind of strategy? So the same law firm has used this strategy, which is called mass arbitration in recent years on behalf of workers, delivery drivers for uh, DoorDash and and Postmates, the uh, delivery companies. So it's been used in a small handful of cases. I believe this is the first, at least, major case involving consumer fraud cases. How much money could this mass arbitration end up costing the company? One of the notable sort of dynamics of these mass arbitrations is that Intuit, the company that makes TurboTax, actually has to pay the administrative fees for each arbitration, which can run to several thousand dollars. So when you have perhaps 100,000 people filing for arbitration and the company is potentially on the hook for $3,000 for each case, suddenly 
the company is facing just administrative fees of tens or maybe even hundreds of millions of dollars. The plaintiff side law firm has used those administrative costs imposed on the company essentially as leverage to try to pressure the defendants into settling, which has not yet happened here. For tax filers this season, what should they keep an eye out for? You're going to see a lot of companies advertise tax filing software labeled with the word free. It's important to know that as you go through the filing process, products that are labeled as free sometimes become not free and you might have to end up paying a fee. One option that people should know about is the IRS offers a free filing version that you can find on on the irs.gov website if you made under $73,000 last year. ProPublica's Justin Elliott. We'll link to Justin's recent article and his initial reporting from 2019 on our website, marketplacetech.org. We'll also include a link to the IRS website Justin mentioned in case you want to check out the companies that are still a part of the free file program. And as the situation unfolds in Ukraine, we also want to include some links to tech coverage of that conflict. Technology reporter Taylor Lorenz has a piece for Input Magazine about the meme pages on Instagram posting content about the war, often sharing unverified videos for the sake of going viral. TechCrunch also has a page for up-to-date responses from tech companies on how they're responding to the military invasion and misinformation campaigns. I'm Kimberly Adams, and that's Marketplace Tech. This is APM. All right, the aforementioned and long-awaited asterisk on oil. As sanctions continue to get leveled at various parts of the Russian economy, one key sector is getting off relatively easily. Energy, of course. It is maybe the critical part of the Russian economy. Oil and gas sales were a third of Russia's budget in 2021. But targeting those sales just is not so straightforward. Rachel Ziemba is a senior adjunct fellow at the Center for New American Security. We've gotten her on the phone to talk about the sanctions and Russian energy. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Could you lay out for me, please, the big loophole in all these sanctions, the energy sales part of it versus the Mm -hmm. other restrictions that have been put on some Russian energy companies? Sure. The sanctions program were designed not to impede current sales of, of, of energy, of oil and gas. And that's really a function of the dominant role that Russia plays in those markets. Now, there have been some more direct um, you know, sort of targeted measures. But what we are seeing right now is that the financial stress and strain have meant that a lot of companies are not really willing to take cargoes and shipments right. from Russia right now. And Russian oil, if, if you're a discretionary buyer of Russian oil, people are demanding really big discounts on euros as, as we speak. Let's talk for a second about some of the ancillary um, sort of trickle-down effects of 
the general situation, and I want to ask specifically about BP, British Petroleum, getting out of mm-hmm. its nearly $15 billion investment in Rosneft, the big state-owned energy company over there. Mm-hmm. There's pressure on other oil companies. There is a stigma that now attaches to Russia, energy and otherwise, that's making companies change yes. their behaviors. That's definitely true. And um, and just before we started to talk, I saw news that Shell had also announced mm. their plans to exit. You know, so so this is a part of a broader trend. A range of political and ethical and other risks have definitely been built up. The other issue is that I think companies are looking out at their long-term strategy. So I think this is a function of the sanctions regime imposing significant short-term costs and then companies probably feeling that the long-term benefits of being in Russia, especially a Russia that is willing to engage in policies that cut itself off from global norms and the global economy just isn't worth that risk. As a person who studies this and who is, I'm sure, way down in the the minutia uh, of all of this stuff, step back for a minute and talk to me about the speed at which these sanctions seem to be happening. I mean, Friday, cutting Russia off from SWIFT was maybe Thursday, was not on the table, right? The international Mm -hmm. banking communication system. And presto change over the weekend, it was. And and that to me is a little bit, um, it's remarkable, actually, how fast it's happening. It is. It is remarkable. I mean, I'm hesitant to use the word unprecedented. Yeah. So, I mean, the U.S. Treasury used it many times in its uh, statements. But this is really unique, both in the speed at which uh, measures have come, the degree of coordination. Um, normally, what one might do, even with powerful measures, is impose them and see what happens and then maybe escalate. We saw from about February 22nd onward, we've seen every day or so pretty much escalating measures. And that, I think, is really a function of the speed of what was happening on the ground, the war, Mm -hmm. Um, but also concerns from the public, concerns from officials that what had been done wasn't enough. Do you suppose there will come a time, and it's tough, obviously, with war, it's it's impossible to know how things go, but do you suppose there comes a time when the energy loophole that we started with, the idea that Western currency is still flowing into Russia, which to be clear it is, that people just say, we can't do this anymore. We got to stop. There, There's always a scenario in which that happens. Um, and I would say the political pressure to do something that restricts uh, energy flows is rising. Hmm. The U.S. government and allies will either have to provide somewhat more clarity about how this energy exemption really is going to work, yeah. or they're going to sort of allow that ambiguity to reinforce it. Because what's really happened is this speed and layering of sanctions and other measures have, have created a degree of, of, of uh, financial crisis in Russia, mm-hmm. the, the combined measures have a greater impact right. than, than, than the sum of their parts. Rachel Zamba, she's an adjunct senior fellow at the Center for New American Security. Ms. Zamba, thanks for your time. I appreciate your expertise. Thanks for having me.
Coming up. It's put them in a very difficult situation. Yeah, it sure has. First, though, let's do the numbers. Dow Industrial is down 166 points today, a half percent, 33,892. The Nasdaq gained 56 points, about four-tenths percent, 13,751. S&P 500 down 10 points, two-tenths percent, 43 and 73 there. Heard from Kristen Schwab about Russian citizens lining up outside their banks to withdraw as much cash as they can while it is still worth something. So personal banking stocks here, how about, huh? Amalgamated Bank. Down one and a quarter percent. First Republic lifted one and a tenth. Wells Fargo down 1.4 percent today. Defense stocks were heavily traded today. General Dynamics gained two and eight tenths percent. The shipbuilder Huntington Ingalls Industries Incorporated picked up two and three tenths percent today. Nielsen, the company that keeps tabs on television viewership, reported fourth quarter earnings today. Total revenues at $894 million. Nielsen Holdings tuned out nine tenths of one percent today. Bond prices were up. The yield on the 10-year T-note thus fell to 1.82%. What do you suppose is going on there? It's the flight to safety, U.S. bonds, the safest thing ever. You're listening to Marketplace. This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdal. Even given how fast the whole situation with Ukraine is happening, both on the ground and with sanctions, all the twists and turns, the direction change and the speed of it that Germany has made is kind of stunning. Europe's biggest economy has been cautious about stepping things up. But then we got to this past weekend as Marketplace's Stephen Beard reports now from the European desk in London. At an emergency session of the German parliament yesterday, from the low-key leader of NATO's least belligerent member state, fighting talk. The Krieg is a catastrophe for the Ukraine. Chancellor Olaf Scholz stunned lawmakers, unveiling a massive cash injection into the German army and pledging what NATO has been urging Germany to do for years, to raise annual defence spending to more than 2% of GDP. A standing ovation from a usually dovish legislature, a seismic shift in German politics. Speaking on Channel 4 News, Viola von Kramen of the once pacifist Green Party also welcomed Schulz's decision to ship arms into Ukraine. I think that was the right signal to Putin that we need to kick his ass at one moment. The unexpected pugnacity is not confined to the military arena. Scholz also dropped his opposition to the much tougher economic sanction of kicking some Russian banks out of the SWIFT payment system. A welcome move, says German member of the European Parliament, David McAllister. Yes, the German government has decided to change its position to exclude Russia from the SWIFT system. This will hit the Russian economy hard. Trouble is, it could also hit the German economy since the Germans might now struggle to make payments for the Russian natural gas on which, says analyst Matt Oxenford, they so heavily rely. Germany is, among Western European economies, probably the most uh, dependent on Russian natural gas, getting 55% of its gas from Russia. Germany does have some reserves and warmer spring weather is approaching. Leading business guru Daniel Stelter says the country won't freeze or grind to a halt yet. I think the worst would come in next in the next winter, not this winter. So we have a few months' time to secure other sources and to diversify away f- from Russian gas. 
Germany says it will now build its first two liquefied natural gas terminals so it can buy much more supply from the US and elsewhere. But, says analyst Matt Oxenford, that'll take time. The pipeline system uh, is not something that can very easily be replaced uh, in any short order. It's put them in a very difficult situation, very difficult for the German economy. Which is why Germany had been so reluctant to step up the pressure on Putin. But in Parliament yesterday, the finance minister said we are ready to carry the cost of tougher action because that is the cost of freedom. At the European desk in London, I'm Stephen Beard for Marketplace. Come to understand, during times of great stress upon it, exactly how global this global economy is. We saw it during the pandemic, and we're seeing it now with entire industries that depend on things that are made in Ukraine. Ukraine never having been a straight-up economic powerhouse, by the way. Those industries are now at the mercy of a war where, as happens with war, nobody knows what's going to happen. Marketplace's Lily Jamali has more on that part of this story. To understand what's happening to industry in Ukraine, let's go back to another place and another time. 2011, supply chain expert Jason Miller of Michigan State's Business School says that year, finding a car in certain shades of black and red suddenly got a lot harder. It happened to be that practically the one plant in the world that made the pigments was located in Japan. In a part of Japan located right near the Fukushima nuclear disaster, which had just taken place. Industry in Ukraine is navigating that kind of upheaval now as the nation comes under assault from Russia. This is raising that awareness that you can have these, you know, disruptions occur because of, you know, some tier three supplier that you've never really thought of. Tier 3 suppliers provide materials and parts that are key to a finished product. And there are a whole lot of companies buried in the supply chain. A plant in Ukraine that makes electrical equipment for cars has gone offline, prompting Volkswagen to stop production at some plants in Germany. Meanwhile, shipments of Ukrainian iron ore are stuck in ports. The ore is used to make steel both locally and internationally, as far away as Austria and Japan. Sudden shortages like this are a problem for producers of all kinds, says Scott Brown, chief economist at Raymond James. You might have one source for a certain material, and so you're going to have to scramble to find other sources. Those kind of issues are going to come up in this kind of environment. Global companies doing business with Ukraine report they've drafted emergency plans to deal with rising material costs and delivery delays. That's according to Ukraine Invest, a Ukrainian government group that encourages investment there. Industries ranging from chemicals to agricultural processing to building materials are all being affected. Pete Earle is with the American Institute for Economic Research. All of those as well are going to be exacerbated by this conflict which means companies may push to diversify even more than they did because of the pandemic. I'm Lily Jamali for Marketplace.
This final note on the way out today, which would be a global lead story without an actual land war in Europe happening. There was a big new climate change report out from the United Nations today, the upshot of which is this. The risks of a warming planet are piling up faster than our ability to adapt to them is compensating. Droughts, rising sea levels, heat waves and floods and storms, all of that stuff. This has been, by the way, a downer of a program today. I know that. All right, we got to go. Here is your moment of economic context. Comes to us from the analysts at Goldman Sachs who say they figure that oil goes to $115 a barrel in the next month or so. Today, the global benchmark Brent North Sea crude, $101.10 a barrel. That is up about 3%. West Texas Intermediate, the U.S. benchmark, up 4.5%, $95.72 a barrel. Interesting, though, as I sit here and look at my screen, natural gas down a percent and a half, which is, of course, what the Europeans are worried about. Our daily production team includes Anais Amin, Andy Corbin, Richard Cunningham, Maria Hollenhorst, Sean McHenry, and Daisy Palacios. I'm Kai Rizdal. We will see you tomorrow, everybody. This is APM.